Ian, thank you very much indeed. And uh, can I add my welcome to that already given, and particularly to uh, Pastor Josh, who's sitting down here in the front. It was a privilege to drive him up from Musenberg today to be with us. He's here on sabbatical. He's the vicar of a church in Dalston in London. But um, the African connection is that he was born in Zimbabwe and I think at a certain point moved to Zambia before going to London. And I was delighted to discover that uh, for a while he served in the London City Mission where uh, our good friend Dick Lucas was his pastoral examiner. Uh, so you're very welcome. We're delighted to have you with us. Do please come and speak to him over coffee after the service. And then for the rest of us, won't you please have your Bible open at the passage which Ian read so beautifully for us, Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. And I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah... Almighty God says, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Heavenly Father, it is no small matter to have your word in our hands this morning. Please help us not to read it casually or carelessly, or complacently, but rather to read it humbly, reverently, and obediently, for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at some amazing things that Jesus did. And you might say, well, there's nothing very unusual about that. We expect that when we come to church. Well, what is unusual is that we're going to be looking at some things Jesus did after he was crucified. Uh, these aren't things that he did passively or simply by setting a good example. They're things that Jesus did actively after he died and rose from the grave. So by way of contrast, I suppose it's just over a year, isn't it, since the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, a year later, people are still talking about her, aren't they, with great affection, and quite right too, because her example of sacrificial service over 70 years continues, I think, to inspire and influence not just members of the British royal family, but people all the way around the world. But you see, her influence stems entirely from what the Queen did when she was still alive. People who've died do not start new initiatives. They don't confront people. They don't recruit people for special jobs. They don't initiate change and development. Jesus, however, does all these things. He does them every day. He confronts people. He appoints people. He does initiate change and development. But he does it as someone who died but has been raised. In other words, he does his work from a whole new position. He does not do it from earth. 
He does it from heaven. And that's what's happening in our passage this morning. Uh, If you think Jesus has gone for good, you're going to find this passage really rather confusing. But if you know that Jesus is on the throne of heaven this morning, everything will start to fall into place. So, we're going to divide the passage into just three brief points. First, Jesus Christ and the open door. Second, Jesus Christ and the open tomb. And third, Jesus Christ and the open mind. So number one, Jesus Christ and the open door, chapter 5, verse 17 and following. Now so far in our series, we've seen Jesus ascend to heaven. We've seen the Holy Spirit come down from heaven. And we've seen the Lord Jesus working through the apostles in powerful preaching and miracles. And of course, we've also seen the opposition hotting up. And now in verse 17, we're told that the high priest and the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. And uh, the reason that they're filled with jealousy is because of what we read last week in verses 12 to 16. And the picture that we had in those verses is of the apostles doing astonishing miracles. They're also wonderfully united. They're very popular with the people. Their influence is spreading out from Jerusalem to the towns around Jerusalem. They're hugely successful. No wonder the high priest and the Sadducees were jealous. So what do they do? Verse 18 they put the apostles in jail. Now, it is important, I think, for us to remind ourselves what jealousy is. Jealousy is resentment of a rival. Now, sometimes, of course, resentment of a rival is a very good thing. For example, God resents an idol taking his place in your life. And he's right to do that. Uh, A spouse resents a third party in the marriage. And they're right to do it. But some jealousy is wrong. Because we're just annoyed that someone is competing with us, even though they've got a perfect right to do it. And sometimes, if we're honest, we resent a work of God because it frustrates us, or it humbles us in some way. Now that's what's happening here. The high priest and the religious leaders are resenting what Almighty God is doing through the apostles, so they put the apostles in jail. The jail, of course, is useless because Jesus wants the apostles out of jail getting on with mission. And so, verse 19, Jesus arranges for the doors of the jail to be opened so the apostles can get on with preaching. He sends an angel to open the doors and bring them out. Now, I think it's very striking that in our passage, the Lord Jesus overcomes 
or the opposition. Uh, When his servants are put in jail, he brings them out. When they're told to stop preaching, they carry on preaching. When they're beaten so that they might be intimidated to silence, they rejoice. All the opposition is reversed. And I suggest to you that the tone of these opening verses is actually rather humorous. It's kind of laughing at the opposition. Now that should be no surprise to us, because a couple of weeks ago we saw that the believers were seeing their situation as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Do you remember that? And you may remember that Psalm 2 predicts that the rulers would rage and gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And when they do that, what does Psalm 2 say that God is doing? Is he backing off? No, he isn't. Is he moving to plan B? No, he isn't. It's neither of those. No, Psalm 2 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. God laughs at human opposition. Because, of course, there is a sense in which opposing God is quite literally laughable. And that's why, friends, there is heavenly laughter in the background to this passage. Where is that humour? Well, when these uh, senior and powerful people call a special meeting of the Sanhedrin to put the apostles on trial, the apostles are missing. They can't find them. The prison cells are empty. The guards are still there, standing guard at the prison doors. They're tough soldiers. They're armed. It's their job to make sure the apostles stay under lock and key. But there's no one in the prison cells. Meanwhile, the apostles are in the temple courts teaching the people. They're doing the very thing that these very senior and powerful men had tried their absolute hardest to prevent. So it's no wonder, is it, that in verse 24 we're told that the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled. Well, of course they were. And we're also told that it was the Lord's angel who opened the prison doors. Now, that was a huge problem for the Sadducees because Sadducees didn't believe in angels. So what do you say when an angel that you don't believe in opens the doors of the jail and sets the captives free? I should tell you one or two liberal commentators today are equally puzzled by the angel. They don't know what to do with him. One of them has come up with the very imaginative and creative suggestion that the angel might actually have been a friendly warder who acted like an angel to the apostles. It's a marvellous idea. The problem is that this imaginary warder would have to persuade all of the other guards to cooperate, uh, to pretend not to notice when the apostles walked out, and most serious of all, maybe even to be willing to lose their lives which was the price you paid 
as you, as a Roman soldier, if you let a prisoner escape. So you've really got to do some serious mental gymnastics if you want to eliminate the angel from Luke's account. And uh, the reason that the Lord wants the doors open is because, verse 20, he wants the apostles to preach the message of the new life that Jesus offers the world. Now, at this point, I think we probably want to pause and ask the question, well, okay, why doesn't the Lord open every door? I mean, if the, if the Lord can open the locked door in the public jail, I mean, why did he allow the apostles, the apostles to be jailed in the first place? And if he can open the doors and let them out in chapter 5, and do the same thing again for the Apostle Peter in chapter 12, why doesn't he get Paul out of jail in chapter 24? Why is it that the Lord opens some doors, but not other doors? Where's the consistency in that? I think it's a real question. The answer, I think, is that in the end, the Bible-believing Christian has to say, okay, I believe that Jesus Christ is absolutely powerful. He can do anything he wants to, evidence, Acts chapter 5. He's also very loving. He wants people to hear the message of life. He wants them to get saved and grow, Acts chapter 5. And he's also very wise, he sits on the throne of heaven and he sees the big picture in a way that you and I simply don't. And I think that's the framework that we have to hold on to when a door closes in our face and we find that our gospel labors are frustrated in some way or when a new door opens and we find ourselves rejoicing. We have to remind ourselves of those three things. Jesus is powerful, he's loving, and he's wise. And can I say to us this morning that everything in our experience as Christian people fits inside that framework. <clears throat> as you heard from Alice earlier, one of the ministries we support is Open Doors. And uh, Open Doors was founded by Brother Andrew, who died last year, and uh, he started his ministry, didn't he, by smuggling Bibles into communist countries behind the Iron Curtain. Now, at the time, everyone said that was impossible. Uh, Christianity was forbidden behind the Iron Curtain. To attempt to do what he was doing was to risk prison or even death. But you see, the Lord overcame all of those obstacles and enabled Brother Andrew to get those Bibles across the Iron Curtain for literally decades. And today, there are hundreds of thriving churches in those countries, all because the Lord opened the door. And where the gospel is concerned, the Lord is able to both open doors and close doors in wonderful and sometimes unexpected ways ways. So, if you are a Christian here this morning, please will you ask the Lord this week 
to give you a burden to be his representative. So that when the Lord opens a door for the gospel in the life of somebody you know, that you'll notice it and that you'll point them to Jesus. And can I suggest that we would all do well to get into the habit of saying to the Lord first thing in in the morning, I am your servant, please use me today. That would be a good thing, wouldn't it, for us to get into the habit of saying first thing in the morning. Because you see, friends, it's good for us to pray. Yes, it is. It's good for us to give. It's good for us to try and be as consistent as we can in our Christian walk. But you see, we can do all of that very safely. And if we stop there, and that is all that we do, well, it's entirely possible that no one else will ever know we were Christians, isn't it? And we need to be reminded that for every Christian, silence is not an option. The Lord calls us to make ourselves available to be his spokesmen and his spokeswomen. Uh, Those of us who are in the position of paying other people to clean the house or do the garden or wash the car or whatever it is, need to be reminded we can't pay other people to be our witnesses. The Lord has not asked us as Christians to find slaves. He's asked us to be slaves. He's not asked us to sit on his board of directors so that we can tell other people what to do. He's asked us to be in his service and get on with the work he's given us to do. And when you put together this wonderful door that he opens and these willing disciples saying, here I am, send me, well, you've got the very, very best of Christian mission. The Lord opening the doors because he is the Lord and then using people who are willing and available. People, I hope, like you and like me. Jesus Christ and the open door. The second thing this morning is Jesus Christ and the open tomb. And here we're looking particularly at verses 26 to 32. So the authorities, uh, sorry, the authorities find the apostles uh, preaching uh, in the temple and they bring them into the court for a ticking off. They're extremely annoyed. That's clear, isn't it, from verse 28, where the high priest says to them, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Just notice in passing that they can't bring themselves to use the name of Jesus, And they absolutely hate the fact that the apostles have accused them of being responsible for the death of Jesus. They seem to think it's inconceivable that men as important as they are could possibly be guilty of that. And yet, of course, they are. So in the next four verses, Peter's response is brilliant. 
He says, we've been preaching about Jesus because we're under God's authority. We've got to obey God, not men. And for that reason, there are certain things we, notice the word, must say. And Peter mentions three of them. First, we must say that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, why does Peter say that? And why does he say in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree, especially when they've just said, please stop saying that. But Peter says it because they did cause Jesus to be hung on the tree. The tree, of course, is the cross, and uh, that word is used because of a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21, which says that um, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. And on the cross, Jesus Christ really was under God's curse. But friends, the thing that people really need to know is not just that Jesus was cursed by God, which he was, but also that he was honoured by God. Because when God raised him, God vindicated him. So in other words, it's a completely unbalanced and inaccurate assessment to simply say that Jesus died full stop. People who stop there don't seem to appreciate that in raising Christ, God vindicated him, God honoured him. So you see, if your view of Jesus is shaped simply by seeing him on the cross, my friend, that is a biased view. It's a warped view. It's an incomplete view. Because the fact is that God, seeing Jesus on the cross, with the sins of the world on his back, and paying for those sins completely and perfectly, then raised him and said, you've paid. You've done it. You're vindicated. I've raised you from the grave. People need to know that. Just as an aside, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, there is no official shrine to Jesus Christ anywhere in the world. Uh, the most famous or infamous memorial in Cape Town, I suppose, is the Rhodes Memorial. As you know, it's massive, isn't it? You can see it from miles away. Of course, Cecil Rhodes was a famous man, so he has a huge memorial. But for the most famous person who's ever lived, there is no universally recognized shrine or memorial. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why it is. It's because he wasn't in the grave very long. The raising of Jesus means there is no body in the grave, and there's no body in the grave because he's been raised. He's alive. The second thing that Peter says is God exalted him to his right hand. In other words, he didn't simply raise him like Jesus raised Lazarus. He exalted him to the highest place in the universe. And he placed him on the throne of heaven, the place of supreme power and authority. And we must 
tell people about that. As I'm sure you know, there are some extremely loud voices today saying that all religions are essentially the same. And uh, they tell us that just as we Christians believe in Jesus, uh, Muslims also believe in Jesus. But friends, those two views of Jesus are totally different. You can't possibly reconcile them. For a start, one says that Jesus is an inferior being, and the other says that Jesus is the supreme being in the whole universe. And the evidence for the supremacy of Jesus runs all the way through the New Testament. And if you take the view that Jesus is not supreme, well, you have to mentally or physically remove 90% of the New Testament. See, it all points to him being on the throne of heaven. And then thirdly, in verse 32... Peter says, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Jesus. Now that, of course, is the big difference, isn't it, between the nominal churchgoer and the Christian. Because the nominal churchgoer comes and goes from a building, and that's the end of it. But the Christian has God's Spirit in his heart and life 24-7, the whole time. And the reason the Christian has God's spirit in their heart and life, hear me carefully here, is not because they're good, but rather knowing that they are not good, they turn to Jesus and say to him, please forgive me, I surrender to you. And then being joined to Christ in that moment, God's Spirit takes up residence in their heart. And they begin a wonderful new life that goes right through the grave. And you, that, you see, is why Peter says, verse 29, we must say these things. On uh, one occasion, the Baptist preacher Spurgeon said this, I would rather step onto a narrow bridge that I knew went all the way across the chasm than a very broad bridge as wide as the world which did not reach all the way across. Now, dear friends, Jesus Christ is the narrow bridge in the sense that he is unpopular with the world. Your friends might not want to hear about him. Of course, one day they are going to meet him, whether they like it or not. But you see, Jesus is the only bridge that crosses the chasm, and he takes a person all the way to God. And that's why we must tell people It's a very loving thing to tell people about Jesus. Jesus Christ and the open tomb. Thirdly, this morning, Jesus Christ and the open mind. Now, when uh, Peter speaks like this about Jesus being raised, 
and exalted and giving the Spirit, what happens in verse 33? The, the opposition want to kill the apostles. The only thing that stops them doing that is that, that a respected Pharisee called Gamaliel stands up and persuades the council to stop and think. Verse 38, he says, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. That is wise. Uh, there are plenty of human causes that come to nothing. He's absolutely right about that. And of course, it would be hopeless to fight against God. He's absolutely right about that. It seems, doesn't it, as if Gamaliel is God's instrument here for ensuring that the apostles are not dispatched to an early grave. And for that reason, Gamaliel has gone down in history as a peacemaker. But I want to suggest to you this morning that Gamaliel is perhaps not quite as wise as he appears to be. I mean, for example, is it wise to write off every human cause as if it's bound to fail. That's what he does in verse 38. I mean, there are plenty of lies which have lit fires that are still burning hundreds of years after they started. I think it was Mark Twain who said, a lie will run round the world while the truth is still tying on its shoes. Well, that's quite right, isn't it? But more than that, Gamaliel puts Jesus in the same category as the two human warlords in verses 36 and 37, Theudas and Judas. Now, is that wise? Is Jesus really in the same category? I mean, what about the message of Jesus? What about the miracles of Jesus? What about the death and resurrection of Jesus? I mean, as a member of the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel knew all these things. Now, I, I suggest that in spite of his reputation, Gamaliel is actually a lazy thinker. He seems to have an open mind, but it's actually a cowardly thing to be confronted with the evidence for the person and work of Christ and not make a decision. By contrast, Gamaliel's most famous student was a young man called Saul. Saul had a completely different worldview. Saul made a decision about Christianity. As a young man, he said, I'm against it. So he fought it. He saw the implications. He campaigned to rub it out. But then, of course, he met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. He was converted, his name was changed to Paul, and then when he saw the implications of the gospel, he fought for those, and he was prepared to live with the consequences, however painful those consequences might be. But you see, I suspect that Gabriel's, sorry, Gamaliel's priority was peace rather than truth. 
like so many people in the world who just want to be left alone to enjoy an easy, trouble-free life. Well, whether that's right or not, God used Gamaliel's speech to rescue the apostles from an early grave, and instead the apostles were flogged. That probably means they had the standard 39 lashes with a leather belt, and they were released. It sounds horrible. It was horrible. But please notice that they were ready to suffer. They rejoiced that they could suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, In his commentary on the book of Acts, John Stott quotes the saintly African bishop, Festo Kivangeri, who said this, quote, Without bleeding, the church does not bless. Now just think about that statement. Without bleeding, the church does not bless. Maybe one of the reasons we don't bless those around us in the way that we could is because we're unwilling to bear the cost. We're unwilling to suffer for the name of Christ. So I want to finish this morning by honouring Christ. And we're doing this from our hearts together because he rules from heaven. He opens and closes doors according to his sovereign power, his love, his wisdom. And he opens doors for us so that we might know him and serve him and tell other people about him. And then, of course, he rules the world. So if you know that Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of the universe and you take him seriously, you will never go astray. So it will do you good to kneel before him, to honour him, to exalt him in your heart. And Jesus Christ, my dear friends, rules the minds of men and women. See, we might think that Gamaliel was in the seat of power because he seems to have been able to influence the people around him. But just have a look with me as we close at verse 31. Verse 31. Jesus, exalted to the right hand of God, gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. Can you see that Jesus so rules the universe that he actually gives repentance? Now what that means, my dear friends, is that no one repents, no one, unless Jesus gives them the will to repent. And the idea that a person might think he has an open mind, that's actually a myth because they can never actually turn to Jesus unless Jesus enables them to do it. They can't. And I say that because if there's anyone here this morning who does not belong to Jesus, I really want you to belong to him. And I want you, therefore, to feel, to feel your own helplessness. Because, you see, you can't turn to him 
unless he helps you. I don't want you to think that you are in the driving seat. I hope you'll pray. Help me to repent. I've never repented. Help me to be forgiven because I've never been forgiven. Because, you see, there is a great danger that you will leave here this morning and you will say, well, it's all up to me. But, you see, the fact is that Jesus rules. And it's not all up to you. It's up to him. And I also say this for those who already do belong to Jesus Christ, because I want you to feel deep gratitude in your heart towards him. Because it was Jesus who rescued you. God drew you to Jesus. He woke you up from your spiritual slumber. And then he drew you and he forgave you. So please be very grateful for what Jesus has done for you. He's the Lord of the open door. He sent a messenger with the message the world needs to hear. He's the Lord of the open tomb who's conquered death. And he's the Lord of the open mind, which is why everybody must hold on to what they know about Jesus and act on that knowledge before it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for preserving for us this account of the courageous witness of your servants in the face of murderous opposition. Father, as opposition to the gospel intensifies around us, please give us the same courage to urge our friends and family to trust in Christ, remembering that all opposition to your plans and purposes will certainly be defeated and ultimately destroyed. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A little earlier in the service, Alice mentioned that our guest preacher next week is Bishop Frank Retief. And I alluded in the sermon to...